Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. Good morning, good afternoon everybody and welcome to our monthly live stream. Uh, we're going to go ahead and get started with the questions in just a moment, it's the usual format. We get the microphone a little bit closer here. And we're just going to test the audio real quick while you get your questions up. Uh, we have quite a schedule coming up for the next month, we actually have six episodes this upcoming month, so there's going to be a lot of material and uh, we will go over those on the break, but uh, we have quite a few bonus episodes coming up and then of course we'll move into August, but um, still waiting for the chat window to make sure we've got everything good and live. One second please. Coordinate with our mods, again please get questions now. Sorry about the delay. Anyway, while I'm waiting for them to respond, let's go to the schedule right now, why not? Uh, for July 4th, to kind of celebrate the uh, Independence Day thing, we're going to be going ahead and doing an episode on synthetic meat, and then we're going to follow that up with a uh, episode on space tourism the next week, and then we've got our sequence of compact episodes, we'll hit Void Ecology on a Sunday, and um, then we're going to go ahead and do an episode on space whales and bioships. Then we have a collaboration with Jade from Up and Adam, that's another channel I've recommended a few times. And that's going to be on Boltzmann Brains and the Anthropic Principle. And from there we'll move on to our next scheduled episode which is Invasive Aliens. And I'm not positive what the date's going to be for our next live stream, probably the last Sunday of the month as usual, but uh, we'll see as we get a little closer in the month. And I'm still not seeing any questions up so we might be having a little bit of a lag problem. Let's check and see. Oh, I'll just take one from Strollis on the live window real quick. Uh, question. I've heard that- I've heard arguments that nuclear weapons are significantly less powerful than popular believed. Thoughts on nukes and their apocalyptic potential or lack thereof. That's actually a pretty fair point. Um, nukes are very, very strong weapons, obviously, but at the same time, um, you know, I was looking up, uh, how much explosives we use on the 4th of July for that episode and it's about 30 kilotons a year and, uh, for 4th of July alone. And that's twice the, uh, the actual power of the Hiroshima bomb. Uh, a nuke, it can be very devastating, obviously. There's very little in the way of conventional explosives that parallels it. But at the same time, you could be lying in a ditch a few meters deep, uh, barely a mile away from even the biggest nuclear explosives and probably live. And so long as you're not in that first blast wave and you clear the area before you get the fallout, it's pretty much a safe thing. You're not going to die from it. Radiation is very powerful, but it can only go through so much. And a lot of them would be pretty attenuated just trying to go through your house. The biggest threat with a lot of those, and it's actually kind of funny because we were kids, at least I'm dating myself again, if we were kids in the Cold War, you remember the uh, duck and cover, get under your desk, and we said that's an absurd idea, but actually that was the very best thing you could do. You get under your desk at the school and the windows blow out and the glass was the most dangerous thing, and you get missed by that if you're underneath your desk, and then you have the issue of falling masonry and things like that that might hit you on the head or injure you, and the desk is going to protect you from that. Uh, and so in all probability, kids in a school zone, you know, barely a kilometer from a fairly large blast um, are going to be just fine, so long as you get them out of there before the fallout becomes an issue. And the other big danger, of course, you don't want to look at the blast itself because there's so much radiation coming off that it will burn your eyeballs out. Alright, <clears throat> question from James McAllister. Uh, have you ever looked at the Orion's Arm website? <laughs> yes. If so, are there any concepts on it that you find particularly interesting and probable for the future? Uh, I'll be a little bit smug and say the ones I find the most interesting in terms of articles are the ones that have my name at the bottom of them. <laughs> so, 
Uh, I've been a contributor under various names to Ryan's home for a long time and um, for those of you who date back a lot longer than five years, but for those of you who date back to when the show started about five years ago, um, the very first episode uh, on Megastructures, uh, that was a collaboration with myself and Steve Bowers in terms of the artwork for that. Steve Bowers was one of the major artists for uh, Ryan's Arm and most of those were images from the Ryan's Arm website. And there's a lot of folks from there like Kanye that I, I know from everyone today. So great website by the way, Ryan's Arm. Um, the stories, it's it's an open source fiction site. The stories can be of mixed quality but uh, the the Encyclopedia Galactica they have there on all the various megastructures and technology and things you can have all top-notch and uh, a lot of our episodes are borrowed or extrapolated on top of those though of course a lot of them are also borrowed from science fiction by both them and us and uh so yeah i would definitely recommend orion's arm to anybody who wants to get a better idea on a lot of stranger mega structures and what they might be used for reven 609 asks we often focus on urban life in the future what might rural life look like in the future yeah, that's a question that comes up a lot because I live in a rural area myself and a lot of my friends, many of whom do watch the channel, kind of ask, well, what's it going to be like? We're not going to have arcology, surely. And a point we made in the Economopolis episode on planet-wide cities is that even when you're packing trillions of people in, into a planet with giant sky towers and things like that, um, it's really only our agriculture that takes up room. Our houses, for all we talk about suburban sprawl, take up a very tiny percentage of land. It can be misleading when you think about the amount of space involved on those because you spend so much time driving through a suburb and they tend to be on straight lines away from the city not as an actual circle outward um human habitation even if we all lived in you know the classic one acre uh two uh two story you know two thousand square foot house does not take up much room there's about 30 billion acres on of land on the earth and uh if everyone is trying to go for that specific style themselves, you're obviously going to run out of room at that point, but you have the layers option, you've got the skyscrapers option. As to rural life itself, I don't know that we're going to be doing a lot of open air farming, but long before we actually go to the, the vertical farming thing, you'd have a lot of covered over greenhouses and things like that. And uh, at that point, you might also start getting advantageous to do this stuff as vertical farming. So I think the general farming life, which might be under glass, uh, domes and greenhouses, or not is likely to involve a lot more robotics and your, your typical family farm a few centuries ago was just a few dozen acres usually um nowadays you know it's not unusual a lot of my friends who are farmers in the area they own several hundred acres and um they farm that with themselves or just a relative handful of employees because there's there's so much machinery to be used and of course you do see a lot of agriculture in trees so uh, you know people grow trees they grow vineyards we, we do these plantations and nurseries so I think that there would be a lot of the very similar setup and uh, if we stop doing agriculture in open air like that, I think you'd probably see a big move to more compact farming anyway. So probably a lot of trees and a lot of uh, just general forested or grassy area. Um, let me scroll up to the next one here. By the way, thank you for bearing with me during the initial tech problems, which were mostly my fault. <laughs> Uh, Dream asks, hey, what do you think will be the most drastic advance in technology in the next 10 years? Hmm. You know, that's always a hard one to say. Um, I think maybe the biggest one, depending on how things advance, would actually be metamaterials. Because those have such a powerful option to change a lot. Of the, if you've seen the metamaterials episode, you probably know what I'm talking about. But that's one of those things that has a chance to produce the most real paradigm-shifting technologies. 
Um, obviously ones we'd love to see are better power production, better power storage in terms of uh, price and, and consistency for batteries. Um, I'd love to see Fusion somehow get produced or really cheap solar panels. And of course, anything for life extension is always my preferred technology. Max DeBoy asks, if money wasn't an issue and the technology was here, what two or three bionics would you get forced? Not counting being able to live forever, that's assumed. I, I guess I've made that point enough times people know what my first choice for technology would be. Um, hmm. Which bionics would I get? I mean, I don't know if it would really count. Um, I'm not really, a, you know, I'm not really looking for the comic book superhero augmentations personally. Uh, wouldn't mind being as strong as Hercules, but it's not really something I'm dying to get whereas something like a really good health monitor system that was able to track my biometrics really accurately that would be welcome um or uh, hmm what are the ones uh anything where there was neural augmentation of course uh things that let you you know get as rested off of a few hours of sleep or which were just generally good at monitoring and enhancing your brain function would be uh, very welcome things which kind of enhanced vision or let you uh Easily about video calls or shows right to your eyeballs or your ears would be very welcome too. Uh, Plasma Software asks question: Have you seen the new HBO show Chernobyl? If yes, what do you think? Uh, I've not seen it, um, so I'm, I'm, I won't speculate beyond that. Uh, thank you, Asmaroth. Uh, what do you think future religion will be like when building a galaxy is an afternoon project to keep the kids busy? P.S. My name is not Nazmoth. <laughs> um. Hmm. You know, I, I I mean, obviously we avoid politics and religion on the show in general. I think um, that, that my kind of my opinion on both politics and religion for the future is that I just tend to assume with post-scarcity civilizations and the kind of spread out of light lag you're going to have on almost any any Kardashev 2 or anything approaching a Kardashev 2, let alone K3 society, is you're going to be so spread out and so divergent. And there's actually good reasons to try to be divergent, uh, which we'll talk about in an upcoming episode, that... Um, you know, you're not really going to have one system people are too likely to use. And they might start using another system just because they can. In a post-scarcity civilization, efficiency is a little bit less important for how good your systems work. So I think you're just going to see a very large swath of them ranging on pretty much any tract. Uh, it's just going to depend on the culture. You might have folks that are uh, very primitive, uh, early style religions. I probably shouldn't say primitive, but, you know, things like uh, a revival to Norse mythology, for instance, or Greek mythology. And you might have folks who were very staunchly atheist or agnostic or all points in between. I would actually expect pretty much every religion that's around now to stick around for quite some time. Um, Sam Safe says, is there going to be an episode on super materials? Yes, there will be, um, especially with me thinking about metamaterials from a couple of minutes ago. Um, we will go around doing an episode on supermaterials. The problem is that I'm not sure it will be an episode. There's so much material on things like exotic matter or super strong materials that whether or not it could fit in there. And then there's also the question is whether or not you're going to keep that to a regular episode or put into the clock tech episodes. And the clock tech episodes, kind of like the Alien Civilization series, have sort of become all, um, I don't want to say dumping ground, but all safe space for going to things that are less hard sci science and more science fictiony. Uh, you know, we do try to keep it scientifically grounded, but we let ourselves speculate into areas that have a little bit uh, less scientific reality to them. And I think with um, with super materials, we might want to go there too, because you might want to talk about things like uh, adamantium or uh, scrith from the Ringworld series, that super strong material the Ringworld was built out of. Um, 
Andrew Walker asks, my question, is there anything preventing us from powering aircraft from antennas and microwaves being from the ground? No, just targeting naming. And that is a little bit harder than it sounds like because you do need a very powerful uh, power source to actually lock. You, know, you need a very tight, powerful beam to really push an aircraft along. You know, you're usually talking about just for a normal, you know, a 1,000 horsepower engine is very nearly a megawatt engine. And you need to get that beam in pretty tight and you'd have to keep it on tight, which means you'd either need a very powerful power source or a very accurate focus beam that you could keep locked on. Which is a lot harder than it sounds like because things tend to buck around in the air because it's not too, um, not really all that homogenous of a medium. So if you've got a system that can blow missiles out of the sky, uh, then you've got a system that can target aircraft for beaming power to them, basically. I don't think we're quite there yet to do anything that would be really high speed like the orbital things we were discussing in Thursday's episode. But for something like a relatively slow moving drone or blimp, oh, so certainly, with a very low power requirement and very easy to track. Um, okay. Andrew, oh wait, we just got the one from Andrew Walker. Excuse me. Nick Dodd, thank you. Uh, he asks, love your content, dude. Uh, which existing or developing technology do you think could most effectively counter climate change? Hmm. Uh, without commenting on climate change in general, because that's a bit of a controversial one. If you're trying to add or subtract heat, uh, in terms of like countering existing effects, uh, that's where you get into the solar shades and meals. Um, those will be very handy and tail for the other plants too. So it's a good technology to look at. And that could be handy, uh, even in case we have a really powerful energy source like fusion, which would, we would normally say would negate the entire problem of, uh, carbon-based, uh, economies. But, uh, you do start having that heat issue. And we were talking about ring water a few minutes ago and, um, they have the, uh, the puppeteers planet where they have like a trillion people and they'd move their plant far from the sun just so it wasn't overproducing heat. Uh, and that is a case where you might use a solar shade, even though you had uh, a zero carbon footprint economy. Um, but anything that lets you produce power cheaply and carbon neutrally is obviously a good one to have there, unless it's pumping out methane, in which case that would be worse. But uh, And then anything that lets you just kind of cool the planet down. And I would tend to feel like we'll probably have... I'm, I, fusion's always so hard to predict. I hate to even say it's something like 20 years. But because uh, you also had to turn it into a cheap and commercial source too, not just get it working in the lab. Alternatively, I would actually say if we had to right now, just with things like Falcon Heavy or BFR, we could actually either get enough shades in orbit to significantly cool the planet. Though you might be looking at hundreds of billions or even low trillions in terms of getting that up there. And quite a lot to maintain that because they won't last there forever. So it's not a one-time cost. Or to get something like a moon-based industry set up where you could create shades out of the local stuff. It's not that hard to roll a sheet of aluminum on the moon. Um, and that's most of your mass. You could put all your guidance from stuff you launch in space from Earth. So all you're doing is extracting aluminum and making sheets of aluminum. Um, and so I feel like if we need to do a crash project, um, you know, a trillion dollars sounds like a lot. And I did kind of pull that number out of nowhere, although I think I calculated at one point in time. But uh, if you need to pull, the entire global economy is just a little short of $100 trillion dollars. If you had to blow, say, a trillion dollars getting shades up there one year and a hundred billion each year to support that, um, that's very manageable. I mean, that's that's a doable price. And that is the sort of thing where you had the price dropping. Um, the cheaper that gets, though, the better. Um, Andrew Liga asks, if you could visit a specific year in the future, what would you choose? Uh, and what about the past? Uh, that one's from the mods. Um, hmm. 
you know, you, you, the thought is to go as far ahead in the future as you could. And I, I would not mind popping into the year 100 trillion just to see if things were still going on and there was anything like a civilization left over. Because, you know, civilization at the end of time is always talking about these options for after the stars. Um, but I would not mind popping into like about a century ahead of time. There's something we said about not jumping too far ahead. And of course, if you got some technology that lets you jump into the future now, that kind of implies that a century from now they'll have that technology too, so you can do some more jumping and go further ahead if you want to. As for the past, um, I mean, there's so many places you'd want to visit, and I guess it depends on what your motivation is. If I had to pick a time I was going to get stuck in, I would say the 19th century, uh, just because that's that was when the sciences were going on. Of course, I could cheat and I know a bunch of the sciences to invent, but... Um, yeah, there's, there's so much at that time you could actually learn and do everything and get to know all the people actually in the sciences that were going on in the 19th century. That was, I mean, there's no way to say when the modern age began. That's very arbitrary. But to me, that's a very strong period that I would have loved to have been part of. Although the, my favorite time, of course, of the past is yesterday. You know, you, it, the past was not as good as now. <laughs> we can romanticize it, but, uh, you know, it's better now than any time in the past. Um Lucas Demivir, I don't know how to pronounce Lucas's last name. Hi, Lucas. Uh, what is the most exciting subject of research going on in materials engineering, in your opinion? Is the best way to get into this by studying physics, chemistry, or EE? For material engineering, I'd actually go for a straight uh, physical chemistry degree. Um, I mean, you could get a bachelor's in physics or chemistry or chemical engineering first, um, but uh, you can. I think you can get bachelor's in physical chemistry a lot of places. Um, but I would say that's probably the good area to go to if you want to do serious research on it because um, it, it's good to have that good baseline from both physics and chemistry going into things. Um, EE is not a bad one if what you're looking for is like semiconductors. Um, in fact, the professor I learned most of my stuff on semiconductors for, he got in his, uh, he was our physics professor there at the, the Air Force Institute of Technology down in Dayton, but uh, Colonel Marciniak, but he had his bachelor's in uh, mathematics and his uh, doctorate in electrical engineering. And uh, for all practical purposes, that is pretty much a degree in physics. So, <laughs> I mean, a doctorate in physics. So, um, that's a good field to go into if you're looking like semiconductors or, you know, that kind of materials that are more electricity based, obviously. Thank you, Plasma Software. What future space missions are you most excited about? You have to admit, I don't really get all that excited about individual launches. Um, you know, uh, I'd love to see the James Webb Telescope last, with uh, the James Webb Telescope get launched. Although these days, it's mostly because I assume that if I get to see that launch, it's because they have invented live extension. Um, the future space mission I probably will most looking forward to are any speculative ones where we're going back to the moon or actually going to Mars. And I know I'm on record as saying that I, I really think we should do the moon in a serious way before we go to Mars, but I'd still be very excited to see a Mars launch, even if we hadn't done a moon base yet. And I do think we'll actually get something like that in the next 10 to 20 years. I don't think we'll have one for, you know, planned in the next five or six, though. I think that we're not quite there yet. But uh, in terms of enthusiasm, inertia, or anything else. Um, <clears throat> Godozen asks, do you think humanity is prepared for a destructive disaster? Hmm. You know, the thing about a destructive disaster is that in order to have one uh, be destructive like that, it usually has to have a component that you weren't expecting. Uh, there's always a bit of a black swan or unexpected aspect to a lot of these things. Now, I mean, you can predict a hurricane coming to some degree and clear people out, thus they don't do as much damage. 
um, in terms of life, even though they do a lot of damage physically. And we know where they're going to hit, so we can often limit the physical damage in terms of how we construct stuff. Um, so we say a really destructive disaster, like right now that would be an asteroid, a very big like dinosaur killer asteroid. Um, but uh, we're not really prepared for that right now. We will be 40, 50 years down the road. As soon as asteroid mining becomes a relatively profitable industry, you can assume that asteroids will no longer be a threat to us in a direct sense. They might be an economic threat. <clears throat> but, um, you know, something like a supernova, there's nothing we can do about that right now. You know, uh, that, even that's something that we'd have to wait centuries before we'd be in a position to do much about. Just because you have to be so precise about being able to predict where it's going to happen or to get any sort of protective shield between you and it in time. Um, let's see. In types of other disasters, uh, the only kind of disasters that can really hit us that are artificial, and we do actually have an episode coming up on this soon, that's the uh, threats of interplanetary threats to interplanetary and interstellar civilizations. And... Um, you know, the thing that we notice a lot there is that while there are some natural disaster options, almost every kind of disaster you have is going to be kind of a man-made sort of thing, um, kind of an existential threat that we made ourselves. And um, obviously, you're either prepared for that specific one and it doesn't happen, or it's very mitigated, or it's really not a disaster. <sighs> All right. This is new ass. Hello, Isaac. Could large-scale star lifting pacify red dwarfs by removing metals, or would that do no good? Um, it would help, uh, but more in the sense that if you are actually engaging that level of star lifting, you're in a position to kind of homogenize the thing a little bit while you're at it. You, you know, we don't really talk about it in the star lifting episodes, but sunspun activities, solar flares, things like that are not really your friend when you're working on these things and you are engaging in technology and, and, and uh, levels of effect that would allow you to dampen out solar flares or sunspots before they became an issue in one respect or another. So for that same reason, you should be able to do things like that with, um, with a red dwarf to calm it down too. Um... And, you know, at that point in time, you, you have very much changed the game. You have a star that you're pulling metals out of, and that's great. That's what you want it for, and you're pulling gas out of it. And you're stabilizing it to what you want, though. But in a lot of ways, star lifting is also star tailoring. You are altering the thing to be fairly artificial in many ways. And, and there are actually, I don't know if we discussed them much in any of the episodes yet, there are additional things you can do with star lifting and some parallel technologies that kind of change it around so that it's, Gets a little bit debatable if it's even a star anymore, but much more of an artificial structure. But you either cover that elsewhere or I'll, I'll do an episode on it at some point. Um, Olympus Books asks, how far away do you think the first interstellar missions are, unmanned or manned? I guess you could say we've already done an interstellar mission, although it's going to take 70,000 years before it gets there. The Voyager and Pioneer craft that have left the solar system, um, assuming they survived the void intact, which they probably really were not. Um, would count as an interstellar mission. Um, and of course, whenever you're dealing with anything that's going sublight and is interstellar, you have to decide, is it when it gets to its destination? Is it when it leaves for its destination? Or is it when you get the message back that all has gone well? So, you know, it's launching in 2100, it gets there in 2300, and you get the signal back in 2315. You know, I, when was the interstellar mission completed? Well, I have an unmanned one for us, though. I mean, that's just the most logical way to go about it. Although, again, it's kind of debatable what qualifies as unmanned in a lot of those cases. If you're using a really sophisticated AI, um, which I think would be a mistake uh, <laughs> in most cases, uh, that's probably a person at that point in time, so it's not really unmanned from a practical sense. Um, 
KLOL June, oh, I guess in terms of when that would happen, we could have this century we could actually launch genuine interstellar probes. I think that's a possibility, but we'd have to push pretty quickly with our uh, build up for that. It doesn't require any truly advanced technologies. We've discussed the ones involved with that, but those are infrastructure based. Things like stalazors, you know, um, if you want to send any kind of probe that's big enough to transmit back and get there and survive the trip, you need a very large setup for that in terms of power. It doesn't have to be high tech, but it does have to be big. And I'd be dubious if we could get something like that in place uh, during the 24th century. But it's possible. It's just, is the will there? Uh, KLOL June asks, coffee drones, how soon? <laughs> the sooner the better. <laughs> James Rasmussen asks, "Would you like to, which would you like to colonize first, Mars, Venus, or Ceres? Hmm. Ceres. Um, the thing is, Mars and Venus don't really give us anything. Um, you know, you go to Mars, uh, I don't want to say just to plant a flag, but there's no economic benefits. There's no industrial benefit to Mars or Venus in of themselves back to Earth and developing space. They can be very powerful effects on interplanetary economy down the road when they're developed, but initially, other than flag planting or experimentation, which, you know, there's a lot of value to science and things like that, or, or to morale building with prestige missions, but uh, Ceres actually offers us a toehold that's valuable for basically developing and mining the asteroid belt, uh, because it does have that water ice there available that makes for really good fuel. Um, and you know that's why in colonizing Ceres, we said it wasn't so much that you're colonizing Ceres as you're colonizing the asteroid belt, and those bigger ones like Ceres are being used as kind of your foothold place. Um, I don't even know that those would be the first place you really colonized in the asteroid belt, but I think the major settlement, you know, what we really think of as a genuine colony, would be more likely to happen around the bigger ones, even if some of the other ones had uh, stations at them. Whereas with Venus and Mars, um, you know what Venus has is nitrogen. That's valuable stuff to be sure when you're terraforming, but uh, not for when you're making habitats, for instance, around Earth or uh, in the in the asteroid belt, because you can get enough nitrogen from that either from Earth or from the asteroid belt itself. It's not that rare stuff. You need sources like uh, Venus or Titan for when you're trying to terraform a planet or for when you're working on an actual Dyson swarm, not for when you're doing early development where you really only need the nitrogen anyway for where you're growing plants at specifically and uh, it's not really all that much that, um, that you need for that. So I don't know which we will actually colonize for us, but I would tend to think the one that we probably should be looking to colonize for us would be Ceres. Uh, let's take one more question before we go to the break. Uh, did you catch Cool Wars, David Kipping's recent YT upload and paper on statites and quasites? What are your thoughts on the paper? I actually haven't even read the paper yet. Um, Stuart sent me the, uh, let me know about the uh, episode and I went and watched it. Uh, and of course the statites and quasites, uh, the quasites is a concept we've already discussed before. He, he did not know the idea. It's simultaneous invention. He didn't steal or anything like that. Um, but uh, that's what we were calling lagites, uh, lagging satellites and uh so, and probably somebody else came up with the idea years and years ago too. Statites is from Robert Four. Those are the static satellites. And what we had suggested in one of the videos for like beaming power back to Earth was that you might use a lagite, which is a combination of a solar sail with a fairly heavy um, satellite compared to the solar sail so that it was orbiting, but a little bit slower. It was lagging behind its normal orbit for that distance so that it could stay aligned like it was in a Lagrange point with something like Earth to serve as a transmitter. Um, and uh, the same concept there, quasites, and there was of course a paper on non-Kleplerian orbits back in 2009 that actually talked about something very similar to that that uh, I actually didn't know about until relatively recently too. 
So it's a great idea, quasi to lag it's Kong, which I won, but great channel. Uh, that's also where the Halo Drive come from, if memory serves, which is also an interesting idea. We didn't cover the Halo Drive in Black Hole Ships because it's not really something you make a ship out of. Uh, but it is basically the idea of using a binary black hole for a slingshot, so it's a pretty neat one if you can find a pair of those. We usually look at black hole proportional colonizing in terms of making them though, so it's a bit of a different angle. Uh, we may look at it at some point, but he did a great video on it anyway, so just watch that one instead. Uh, the real Byleth. They often accuse you of being too optimistic about the future. What is something you're pessimistic about? Huh. You know, I never think of myself as an optimist in the first place, and a lot of my friends would really dispute that claim too. Um, <laughs> uh, I usually think of myself as a bit of a uh, pragmatic realist. Um, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Things I'm pessimistic about uh, in terms of the future. I guess compared to like uh, kind of the classic Gene Roddenberry Star Trek idea, I'm actually pretty pessimistic about people. And the thing is, I don't really think of that as pessimism though, because a lot of our negative traits, uh, I don't see them as bad things. I only see them as bad things when we uh, don't kind of when we let them off the leash a little bit too much. Um, you know, uh, the difference between a vice and a virtue uh, is often just degree and intent. And I do think that has a lot to do with maturity um, of, of of people in a culture. So um, I guess that makes me an optimist anyway. <laughs> but um, hmm. Biggest thing I'm pessimistic about really is is that we actually find intelligent life in this galaxy or anywhere near here that didn't originate here. Uh, because I mean, I, I am a big old Star Trek fan. I'd love to actually meet some friendly alien civilizations out there, but I tend to be pretty dubious if we will have them. Anyway, let's go ahead and head to a break, uh, get your questions in while we're gone, and uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. So while we're taking a quick break, I thought we'd hit the upcoming schedule real quick. But before we get to that, this is a great time to get some more questions in the queue, and do try to watch the spelling and grammar and keep them concise. We've got quite a packed schedule coming up in July between now and our next live stream, four regular Thursday episodes plus two bonus episodes. We'll start the month with a look at synthetic meat on July 4th, and a look at space tourism in the near and more distant future on July 11th. The week after that, we have a two-part episode on Sunday the 14th and Thursday the 18th, where we'll be looking at life that might evolve or be tailored to live in the vacuum of space, what we call void ecology, then look at the idea of living ships and space whales. On Sunday the 21st, we'll be teaming up with Jade from Up and Atom to explore the concept of Boltzmann brains and the anthropic principle, the notion that an intelligence might emerge by random chance but also the possibility that they may be a lot more common than we think, and maybe a lot closer to home than we realize. We will then close out the month with a return to the Alien Civilization series to examine the notion of alien invasions, both overt and covert, and what might motivate that and how it might happen, then finish off with our end of the month Q&A. So that's a lot of SFIA for July, and that busy schedule wouldn't be possible without a lot of support from our audience and a lot of tireless work by volunteers on the show, like Ken York, who I'll turn it over to for a minute before we get back to our live stream. Hi guys, this is Ken York again, one of the animators for Isaac Arthur who was uh, nice enough to let me promote my technical animation Patreon page here. What I do basically is produce free technical animations to clearly visualize certain concepts. 
sometimes content creators like Isaac Arthur need to show how something works in detail, but it can be hard to find good resources online. And it's really expensive to have a video made properly by a graphics design agency who might not even understand the underlying technology. So I decided to create a model where I generate technical animations and give them away for free to content creators like Isaac Arthur and academia, media outlets, and tech companies that have good ideas. I'm a software engineer by training and I've developed this graphics engine specifically to make explanatory tech animations like these. So anyways, there's a huge list of tech concepts we really want to animate properly, but since it's a very time-consuming process, I started this Patreon page for financial support. Also through Patreon, I'm trying to build up an interactive team of advisors in various science and engineering fields. If you see something in this list or anything else that you can help out with, please let me know. Of course, anyone can contribute and I would appreciate feedback from anyone. Once again, my name is Ken York and I go by YD Visual on Patreon, link uh, below in the description. Feel free to email me too if you have any questions. Thanks again and see you in the future. Okay, and we're back. Um, thank you, Milson. Uh, what are your thoughts on Musk's criticism of O'Neill habitats? Namely, that it is ridiculous when you consider the logistics of transporting that much mass. Oh, I absolutely agree. Uh, when we talk about O'Neill cylinders and megastructures, there's always a context for this. Um, it's not just can you transport a gigaton of mass, and, and the smaller size O'Neill cylinders, that's about what you're looking at as a gigaton. Uh, remember, it's still pretty expensive for us to just move a few tons of stuff into space. Um, and this is a billion times that. Um, you don't source stuff like that from off Earth. You're sourcing off of the moon or asteroids. And in order to uh, to be able to do that, you need a lot of automation, not just to build the thing. Um, people would be involved in the construction. That's something we'll talk about in a few weeks or sorry, next month in uh, make structural maintenance. But um, you need that automation to engage in your mining. You need those smart bots that can do you know, 99% of the work uh, so that you're not having people forging metals. You want it so that people in your steel industry or in your uh, dirt transportation industry are mostly just quality control. You know, they are, they are, they are watching a giant factory that's doing almost all the work. Uh, the thing is, I, I tend to feel like that's the only way space travel really becomes viable in the first place with a lot of automation. Although I like to point out, a lot of automation does not necessarily mean really sophisticated AI. You do not need to be a very smart computer to uh, to scoop up aluminum and dirt and turn that into a piece of plate and then fly it to some location. Maybe a bit smaller than our current ones are, but really not even that much. It's more of a software thing. Um, the ability to make factories that make robots, that make more robots, that make stuff is kind of where you're going to that zone for automation. Once you have that, it, it I don't want to say it destroys the economy, but it completely shifts the paradigm. If you were to ask folks back in ancient Rome uh, what they think of a railroad track and a train, um, you know, they knew what a steam engine was, at least in a kind of a loose sense. Um, they understood the idea of machinery. The thing that would probably be most unbelievable to a lot of them would be that you would have thousands of kilometers of steel rail, because steel wasn't seen the expense to make back then. Um, <clears throat> when it suddenly became cheaper, it wasn't all that long before railroads cropped up or superstructure, uh, super skyscraper, you know, skyscrapers started showing up. And uh, that's kind of the same thing with automation. A lot of things that we think of as being impractical, as Musk says, um, you know, it's not really all that practical to build an O'Neill cylinder. And I think that's something that Keith Henson, uh, one of the folks who was working with uh, Gerard O'Neill to come up with the idea in the first place, uh, had mentioned as well, is that this is not viable right now. It's not something that should be on a map right now. 
is something that goes on a map when we have better automation, when we have much cheaper power supplies. And uh, it's something you start building after you have an overall infrastructure. You don't build a skyscraper in 1849 in, in California. You got to wait till you have a population industry built up there. But if it's just a matter of you know hauling mass around, fundamentally that's just energy. And if you have a big supply of energy, and we've got a gigantically huge sun right nearby to pull energy from, then it's not really an issue. Um, Eddie Mercury asks, chocolate or caramel sauce on ice cream? <laughs> you know, I actually don't like caramel that much. Uh, I do like chocolate on ice cream. Um, mint chocolate chip is probably, well, generally any type of ice cream or dessert that has chocolate in it, especially dark chocolate, is usually going to be my favorite. I don't dislike caramel, but I'm not a huge fan of it. Uh, strange question. <laughs> Robert Jackson asks, question, do you think launch costs will come down much further with conventional rocket technology, or do we have to wait for a space elevator orbital ring? I think we could actually see launch costs down to about $100 a pound if they can, you know, we had the uh, recent launch with the Falcon Heavy where they almost managed to get the core landed, and they've been having a, quite a problem doing that, but we always said, you know, a couple of decades back that the big snowball into space would hit when you got launch costs down to about $1,000 a pound um, for payload. And uh, that's about where we're getting to right about now, and we will get there more with economy of scale. And you would say, well, there's not been a snowball yet. I, I tend to feel that we're already in that snowball, that, that you know, that avalanche into serious space exploration expansion. We just haven't really realized it yet. A lot of times you're in the middle of it and you don't see it until hindsight. You know, um, the first people putting factories up in England uh, during the uh, Industrial Revolution or uh, what would they call the one before that, the Industrious Revolution, um, those folks did not call their era that. They did not really realize that they were at this huge game-changing level for humanity. And I think that we've already hit that, and uh, I do feel like, you know, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Apollo in a, f a few weeks here, and uh, of Apollo 11, and um, I don't know if we're going to date it from then, that the space exploration hit, or if we're going to maybe date it off of something like uh, SpaceX coming online, but uh, I think we can bring launch costs down probably about a factor of 10 if we just get much better and, and do economy of scale with reusable rockets in terms of landing them and mass producing them. And I do think that is enough for our purposes, but uh, that gets you up to space. We obviously about an orbital ring. They're not complex technology, but they're like the railroads. You just don't build them until you have a very large demand for mass because they are big, expensive, and large, and you have to maintain them like a highway. They're very economic if you're shipping megatons of material to and from the surface, but you actually need to have megatons of material to ship back and forth. As to space elevators, though... And it's one of the reasons why we don't spend all that much time on them on the channel. Uh, they're very handy on a place like the moon, maybe even on a place like Mars, but they don't have a very high throughput. Um, you can only have as much mass on one at a time as going to not rip that thing apart. And it's 24,000 kilometers long, or longer than that, sorry. Um, that's a long way to run a, a thing before you can put the next load on. <laughs> so, um, not to say, I mean, if we do get the material to make those, those will be very valuable, but uh, I'd still say the orbital ring is a lot more valuable than the space elevator. Um, Mihail Vorzen asks, how do you think the next 100 years of space exploration and colonization will look? Any chance we'll see more videos about these topics? Uh, we will. Um, by the way, feel free to get some more questions in. Apparently we're running low today on those, so uh, it's summertime. Everyone's off doing things, not watching the show. Um, we do have coming up in late September, 
yeah, late September, uh, springtime at most, middle of September, springtime on Mars, and that will be our return to colonization in the solar system relatively near future, although that's probably a little bit beyond that because we're looking at terraforming for that one. Um, then we do have the space tourism episode coming up next, next, next week. Um, and that's going to look at the near future, but uh, I do get asked sometimes about doing neo-term stuff, and it's not that I don't like to do neo-term episodes, it's that I usually like to start with the technology, and if it has something in the next 20 years, I'm fine with looking at that, but I don't like to stop there, I like to keep going to see how far off in the future we can push it. A lot of our technologies that we discuss here, it's not that we don't start 20 years from now because it's boring, we start, don't start 20 years from now because we can't do it in 20 years. We're not going to do stall lifting in 20 years. There's no point in even contemplating that until like the year 3000 as a war. Um, but whenever we're looking at something like colonization exploration, I don't want to just stop one century into things. I want to keep going and see what it's going to look like way further down the road. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Tudor Sarpy asks, Isaac, do you think we as humans have anything interesting to offer to an advanced alien civilization? That's actually going to be part of our topic of invasive aliens uh, in a couple of months, or oh, in a month or so. Um, end of the month, end of next month. I lose track of our schedule here. Let's see. Do we have anything interesting to offer advanced civilizations? To know what an advanced alien civilization wants, you have to ask what it does not have. And, uh, you know, we're not valuable to them as a labor force. Um, we're not valuable to them as a food source. We're not valuable to them as a technology source. And we're not valuable to them as a raw material source um, if they're around because nobody's busy disassembling whole plants and star systems uh, that we can see, which means they have no reason to do that or they don't exist. Uh, and then Earth is not only fairly mundane in that regard, it's actually one of the places you last hit because it, it's very heavy gravity well and you always want to get all your other targets forced. Arguably even a star force too, a star lifting because you have a power supply for your mining right there. Um, so what does that leave you to have an interest in Earth for? And they have to have an interest in say our art, our culture. And it doesn't have to be the entire alien race that is into that. Um, you know, we have a lot of civilizations on this planet that I can't even name. Um, I know there's something like 200 some odd countries in the UN and I feel pretty good that I could probably name half of them. Uh, and I'd probably recognize 90% of them on a list. Um, and inside each of those cultures, there are tons of little subcultures. There are tribes in the Amazon who I would not recognize the name of and neither would most of us. And I have no particular desire to go visit them personally, but there are entire anthropology divisions of our universities that would love to go visit them. And remember when we're talking about interstellar civilization, a Kardashev scale civilization, they have more anthropologists than we have people, you know? <laughs> so there was going to be someone who's interested in our, in our art, in our culture, in our history, in our video games, in our TV shows, uh, in wine because they don't have wine on their plant or in, you know, wood because they don't have trees there or whatever it is. We will have things that they do not have as curiosities. Um, and, you know, we'd be interested in alien species, so I don't really think there'd be any reason why they wouldn't either. Now they have a different psychology than us, but there are two things we can say that most alien civilizations would tend to have um, beyond what would normally evolve like a desire to survive. Uh, one of those is a sense of curiosity. You're not going to get technology without that. It doesn't matter how small you are, you're not just going to suddenly decide to figure out how stars work when there are pinpoints of light in the sky if you're not curious about what they do. And the other is that they are tend to probably be very interested in people in general because you don't build a civilization without a lot of cooperation, which means a social group. 
So probably almost every, if not every, intelligent species in the, in the universe or multiverse is probably going to be social and curious. That might not be friendly, but uh, it might tilt that way too. Um, let's see. David S. asks, as VR technology improves, what fraction of labor in low Earth orbit do you think will be done in person versus teleoperating humanoid or non-human robots? It's always kind of hard to guess with that. You know, a lot of times in science fiction, the moment we say we've got robots, there's an assumption that the robots do pretty much everything. Uh, we've been inventing better and better robots for generations now, and, and we still have a lot of people actually physically in the factories doing stuff. Um, the, you know, a bottleneck on a lot of our production is complexity. It costs a lot to make something complex. And so people go for something cheaper, even though we can make something better, because it's more economical. Um the better you get with your automation, the more sophisticated you can start doing because you no longer have to use your main manpower, creativity, or cost on the simple parts. So you start seeing more complexity and that would tend to stay ahead of the AI. And um, you might have a lot of teleoperated machines, I think you probably would, um, but I think, and you think you'd have a lot of robots like Roombas doing the cleaning, you know, nobody wants to go to space to scrub toilets, although a lot of us would volunteer to do that right now just to get into space. Um, but... Uh, that's that same thing we always have with AI. At a certain point, it gets to be a kind of a human-level AI, and you're either dealing with just another person who is therefore not a robot, um, or you've got that whole slavery issue or tailoring something so that's kind of an idiot savant. It's very good at something, but uh, doesn't have any normal human motivations. And I tend to think that's fairly dangerous ground to go playing around with uh, ethically, and then as well as as a direct threat. You know, don't let Skynet loose. Game Crasher asks, what's the worst FTL system in sci-fi and which was the best? You know, it depends a lot on what your what angle you're approaching from. From a scientific perspective, there are not a lot of good FTL systems because there's not a lot of good basis for them. Um, usually the best ones you're going to have um, from a science perspective would be something like a hyperspace where you're just jumping into a parallel congruous dimension that you can run through faster or a wormhole. Um, but those tend to be not too well portrayed. But from like a, a storytelling point of view, um, I think the ones from Stargate were really nice. Uh, same for Peter Hamilton's wormholes in the uh, Commonwealth Saga, where you're jumping from planet to planet as opposed to using a spaceship. Um, <clears throat> I think that makes very good storytelling. Uh, I think from a military sci-fi perspective, the gravity waves idea that we saw in uh, David Webber's Honorvorce or the uh, nodes that you would jump to on the edge of a solar system, uh, like the Mandeville points that we see in um, in Warhammer 40k or in uh, Larry Niven's uh, Moten God's Eye, uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Ponell's work there. Um, just structurally in terms of a, a, a storytelling apparatus, I think are very good ones. Um, but uh, as to a fictional system using FTL in what I'd say is a realistic way, I really couldn't think of one. Um, there are some really I mean, like Dune had a really good one, but I wouldn't call that realistic per se. In terms of really bad ones, that's it's hard to say because there's just so many really awful ones in science fiction. Uh, I would often say the very best FTL system in sci-fi is where you barely bother to explain how it works at all, just because it doesn't even raise the specter of scientific realism. Um, <clears throat> you know, in stuff like uh, Star Wars or Isaac Asimov's Foundation, they barely mention how the stuff works, and that's probably a good way to go from a storytelling perspective. Um. I guess my favorite though would actually be the one we came up with for Hades 9. I like that one. <laughs> uh, 7 I, I, I asks a uh, question. 
do we have existing examples of something that works like orbital rings? One part moves fast, another separate part moves slow, and together stays in orbit. I mean, we don't actually have anything in orbit that does that. Um, you know, a pipe is an example of an orbital ring in terms of the structure of how it works. You got a stationary thing and something fast moving through it. Uh, if you take a hose and you string it between some points so it's all saggy and you turn it on, it stiffens up. That's that's exactly how an orbital ring works, basically. Obviously, you're not using regular friction material. You should be using something like a magnetic coil and, and a you know bike chain link or just a coil of spinning metal. Um, <clears throat> there's nothing really sophisticated about that, though. I, I think it's... Um, I think because it seems like a really huge object uh, and a really powerful object for getting into space that people assume it's really sophisticated. But a lot like the Shikata Thruster, there's nothing sophisticated there. It's just big. You know, Shikata Thruster is just a bunch of mirrors around a star. The idea of moving a star seems ridiculous, but it, the technology is really simple. Or using a black hole for power. Um, making the black hole is tricky, but if you already have one nearby, getting power off it is stupidly easy. Uh, big ones you just dump it matter down into it and absorb the radiation. Making it very efficient is a little bit trickier, but if you don't care that much about efficiency, and even a very inefficient one would be better than fusion, um, that's really easy to do. Same for orbital rings. There's a there's probably a lot of difficulty actually in the walk, um, but uh, especially if you're trying to use superconductors and you don't have a metamaterial that's going to stop magnetic fields. But uh, there's nothing really all that sophisticated about the idea. Space TV asks, if you were to meet an alien, what would be your first question? Hmm. Huh. You know, I usually say that the first questions you should ask in a first contact scenario should be designed to see how much they're going to lie to you. Um, which hopefully is not at all, or only in a very we don't want to scare you off kind of way. Um, they already know everything they need to know about you if they're meeting you on your own terms. Same as we would know if we were visiting a more primitive civilization, we would have researched the heck out of them first. So by the time we're ready to meet them, we not only know their language, but we know everything we need to know about how they're going to react. We know how to deal with the situation with, for them better than their own leaders would. And the same is way true for any alien. So you know, the meeting circumstance you're having with them, you have to ask why have they gone for that particular way of meeting you. So I think in a lot of those cases, the first question you want to be asking if you meet an alien is why do you look like an alien as opposed to an android or how long have you been here? Um, how long have you been watching us? How long have you been on this planet? Because you want to see if they're going to lie to you, perhaps, you know. Um, you don't want to give it away, per se, that you've figured out they're up to something nefarious if that's what the case happens to be. Um <clears throat> Z, um, Zealot asks, oh, and thank you, Zealot, um, thoughts on using methane for hydrogen storage? The problem with storing hydrogen, uh, as gets noted, is that hydrogen or dihydrogen uh, tends to go through almost everything. It's very tiny, so it's really hard to store the stuff. Uh, it can also be kind of damaging on the materials around it. It leaks uh, small particles not well contained inside materials. So something like methane is a pretty good way to store that. You know, you got what... Uh, Hopefully I don't mess that up. Four, four hydrogen atoms and one carbon atom. Um, and that's a good ratio of hydrogen to carbon. Although it's worth noting in a case like that, you're still storing more carbon than you are hydrogen. Uh, so that's maybe not ideal for a fuel tank where you need to worry about how much mass you're carrying around like a rocket. You'd rather store pure hydrogen um, rather than having slightly over half your mass be carbon. Right? Um, but uh, for storage for things like hydrogen cells or just long-term storage, yeah, methane's a great way to store it. Uh, carbon's pretty common. Uh, I think it's fourth or fifth most common element after uh, hydrogen, helium, and oxygen. I think maybe ion. Um, so if you're trying to store hydrogen somewhere where you don't have a lot of gravity holding in place, 
methane, you know, and sorting a little carbon in there, it's probably a really great way to store it for the long term. As for rockets, that's just can you find a way to store it faster than it's going to leak out and use it as straight hydrogen, or do you need to be able to store it longer, in which case, you know, methane would be a good approach. Roberto asks, which sci-fi universe would you like to live in the most? Um, hmm. Which sci-fi universe? Not Warhammer 40k. <laughs> um, hmm. I was thinking of the, my, some of my favorite science fiction settings. I would not want to live in my favorite one, which is Alistair Reynolds' Revelation Space, a very dark place. I wouldn't want to live in the Foundation series uh, universe because it's in the middle of a dark age uh, for Masma. I wouldn't want to live in the Dune universe. It's pretty dark too. Um, maybe the one from Austin Scott Card's uh, Endless Game series after the war was over. Uh, that seems to be not really utopian, but pretty nice. <laughs> so... Um, Let's see. I mean, what usually makes a sci-fi universe interesting is a little bit of conflict, which generally means it's not too utopian, so not necessarily the place I'd want to live. Uh, we got time for a few more questions. Um, our nuclear reactors right now are glorified steam engines. Is there a better way to utilize fission? Um, hmm. Not that we've come up with yet. I mean, RTGs, for instance, don't use water to run things. Um, and you don't actually have to use water as your working medium. But uh, RTGs are not very efficient. You're looking at, you know, 6 to 10% efficiency versus a reactor. Typical water, you know, steam engine with the working fluid of water can do 30 to 50%, I think. Um, don't quote me on that. Uh, there are working mediums that typically aren't worth the effort but can do better than that. Like molten salt is actually a great example of one that can do better in many ways. But um, you're not really using losing that much of efficiency. And the same as with like photoelectric uh, effects, those are not super efficient either. You do have that fundamental problem of uh, you can only get so efficient with your engines too, with a heat engine in general. So um, I don't think there's really a better way to utilize fission in general just right now, other than if you want really compact things, stuff like an RTG is the best way to go. Killing Copeland asks, there is a lot of investment going on in space mining fields. When do you think we will actually see this as a meaningful industry? 50 years or earlier? I would be surprised if it wasn't going on inside 50 years. Um, but uh, I do think we have a pretty good chance of seeing some effort into it, maybe even as soon as a decade from now, but probably a little bit further ahead. Um, it's not going to come as a huge surprise when it happens. And uh, the question is really, is somebody going to do something that suddenly makes it very economic to do it, in which case there'll be a rush, a gold rush, or is it going to be one of those things where someone's trying that first job to you know, kind of build up interest in it? Um, that might be a little bit more risky. And we'll see which way that goes first. Okay. Uh, Norwegianization asks, what kind of benefits would a cylinder-shaped craft have? Um... I mean, the major reason why you want a cylinder-shaped one is because you want that artificial gravity, but you also want a really thin cross-section. And a long, skinny needle is, is one of the best cross-sections you can have for a spaceship. Um, I think I've said in the past that a cylinder is it, but it's really more that cylinder with the nose cone. You do want that deflection on debris. Um, that is the kind of main advantage there is it's a relatively compact thing. You can squeeze a lot into a circle that's just really long. And of course, the idea is that you can spin that. So that doesn't actually mean the spaceship would be uh, cylinder shaped. You could have a cylinder habitat inside of one that was, say, a square or something like that. But generally, what you want is is long, symmetric, and 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 skinny for any kind of spacecraft. It just works out better. 
Okay. Last question would take, uh, thank you, Space TV. How do you think you would respond if an advanced alien civilization offered to uplift you to their level of intelligence? I'm not sure I'd actually say yes. Uh, certainly not right away. It would be a very tempting offer, um, obviously. I mean, but at the same time, um, I tend to be of the opinion that any rapid or major change to to who you are and uh, into your mind is kind of a certain form of suicide. Um, you know, it's a tree is still a tree when it grows and adds some more leaves and things like that. But uh, no matter how slowly you do it, if you turn it into a table, uh, that tree is gone. That there's now a table there, uh, even if that table is made entirely of that original wood uh, from that one tree. So, uh, but I think that I probably would actually say yes in the end on something like that, um, but not without giving a lot of consideration and preferably not being the first one to do it. Uh, there's always going to be somebody who's more anxious to try it first, and they are welcome to do so. All right, so we're going to go ahead and go over the schedule again real quick, uh, and then we'll sign off for the day. Um, coming up in July, again, on July 4th, we got the synthetic meat option. Um, but, oh, thank you, Fabex, for the, uh, we'll do one last one. Possible cost to cool off by a screen at Lagrange. I assume by that you mean uh, how much would it cost to get something to Lagrange 1 orbit, and uh, that was big enough to be a shade. That's maybe not the best place to be putting one, though it's not too bad because you don't really have that expansion cone the same way you tend to expect. Um, going to the Lagrange points more expensive, uh, but it may be more stable. And if you're launching from the moon, it depends. Are you sourcing your shade material from the moon, or are you sourcing it from Earth? If you're sourcing it from the moon, yeah, go to the Lagrange point, and at that point, cheaper than setting off at Earth. But um, it just depends on how much shading you want to do. You're talking about making potentially thousands if not millions of square kilometers of shade. So how much does tinfoil cost per square kilometer basically and how much does it cost to launch that much and how much does it cost to make it on the moon? We can't really estimate something like that right now but usually you run the various numbers you're going to come up with something well in the upper hundred billion. So, uh, so closing our schedule for today, um, synthetic meet on July 4th uh, and then we have space tourism coming up on July 11th. And then we have our Void Ecology episode the Sunday right after that on July 14th, followed by our Space Whales and Bioships episode on uh, on the next Thursday after that. Then another bonus episode or a pair of them with uh, with Jade from Up and Adam on Boltzmann Brains. And then we have our Invasive Aliens episode uh, on the last of the mo- uh, last Thursday of the month for having our next um, next live stream, uh, which will get scheduled before then, but we will probably be the same time, same last Sundays before. Anyway, thank you everyone for joining us, and again, apologies for the early technical problems. We'll see you on Thursday.